You're listening to the Dead Presidents Podcast. And this is the top five most embarrassing personal moments. Welcome to the Dead Presidents Podcast. I'm Stephen Lincoln Douglas. And I'm James J. Hamilton. We got to get into our top five this week. Yeah, we have a... Uh... The conclusion to a triumvirate of embarrassing top fives. Yeah, we had embarrassing brothers, embarrassing personal moments, and now we have the top five embarrassing political blunders... That's right. We have the blunders more, not necessarily bad policies, but just, uh, you know, kind of maybe political moves, bad optics. Yeah, some bad optics. The kind of thing where the president will, you know, he'll end up looking at himself in the mirror and say, man, I wish I could have that one back. Yeah, a gaff that's going to come back and bite you. We got a good list of those. That's right. It's time for... The Top 5 Embarrassing Political Blunders. Number 5. Healthcare.gov launch. Yeah, Americans were being asked to trust the government to run the health insurance market. Yeah, always a good, always good advice. Yeah, trust the government. Yeah, but on day one, they're greeted with a stunning example of extreme government incompetence. On October 1st, 2013, the Obama administration launched healthcare.gov, the official healthcare exchange for residents of 36 states. In the days, weeks, and months leading up to the launch, the administration had been peppered with repeated warnings that the website was not ready and wouldn't be able to handle anywhere near the expected capacity. But the launch date was mandated by law, so it went forward anyway. And the Obama administration was later accused of, quote, going out of its way to hide the chaos behind the scenes. Within two hours of the launch, the website crashed. Users were first told, apply now, then please wait, then please try again later. On the first day, 2.8 million people visited the site and only six users successfully signed up for insurance six I, I i just want to put that in a different perspective it's you know mm -hmm. a comet hit the earth 2.8 million people were killed but six survived mm -hmm. this is their story and then you go into a nice yeah. uh, sci-fi theme and well that's pretty a hit show it's pretty ridiculous. I mean, the Dead Presidents podcast gets 2.8 million hits on a slow day, and we never crash. That's right. In the first week of healthcare.gov, only 1% of those interested were able to enroll. And even when people were able to apply, insurance providers were reporting information missing from the applications. On The Daily Show, John Stewart issued a challenge to Secretary of Health and Human Services, Kathleen Sebelius. He said, I'm going to try and download every movie ever made, and you're going to try to sign up for Obamacare, and we'll see which happens first. <laughs> every American 
was legally required to have health insurance by mid-December, and yet the website's problems persisted into late November, cost hundreds of millions of dollars to fix. On October 21st, Obama faced the nation. He said there was no excuse for what was happening. There's no sugarcoating, he said. The website has been too slow. People have been getting stuck during the application process, and I think it's fair to say that nobody's more frustrated by that than I am. Pretty frustrating indeed. Mm-hmm. Well, that's going to bring us on around to the top five embarrassing political blunder. Number four. The Malays speech. Say, Jim, how about a bag of Malays potato chips? Jimmy Carter never actually used the word malaise, but that was how the press labeled his most famous speech as president, which has been called, quote, perhaps the most politically tone-deaf speech in modern American history. In 1979, the nation was suffering from a stagnant economy, high inflation, high unemployment, and an energy crisis visible in long lines at gas stations. Things aren't too great. No. You got a lot of small businesses closing down. Uh, things aren't looking too swift at home. So at the last minute, Carter cancels a planned Independence Day address to the nation and disappears from the public eye. Ten days later, he reemerges to give the nation a very uninspiring pep talk. He said, quote, The threat is nearly invisible in ordinary ways. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. The erosion of our confidence in the future is threatening to destroy the social and political fabric of America. This is not a message of happiness or reassurance, but it is the truth, and it is a warning. He went on, and went on in vain. The Boston Globe said, Today the Malay's speech makes for agonizing listening, perhaps the slowest 33 minutes on YouTube. Vice President Walter Mondale had advised against the speech, arguing in a heated meeting that the crisis in confidence was not among the American people, that it was in our own leadership, and that we had to be careful not to appear to be pointing the finger at them rather than at us. Now, Jim, initially the speech was actually pretty well received. In the immediate aftermath, Carter's poll numbers bounce up a little bit. But what but happened next? Two days later, Carter fires six members of the cabinet, and it's really starting to look like Mondale called it. Mm -hmm. Carter's speechwriter, Hendrik Hertzberg, said, I do think people were ready to follow in those first days after the speech. And then there was the cabinet Jonestown. And that's where everybody started to turn against Carter. Thomas DeFrank of Newsweek said, Wholesale sacking of cabinet officers usually comes off as desperation, and I think that, plus the speech... It all contributed to the notion of Carter as a floundering leader. I think from that time on, the feeling was that Carter was on borrowed time. 
Carter's approval rating subsequently tanked. And within months, he was challenged for the Democratic nomination by Ted Kennedy, who got almost 40% of the primary vote. No incumbent since has faced a serious primary challenger. The Republican nominee Ronald Reagan took on a much different rhetorical tone, referring to America as a shining city on a hill. And he would go on to destroy Carter in the general election, winning the Electoral College 489 to 49. Those are Obamacare numbers. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you know, Carter may have been right that there was a crisis in confidence, but it's the leader's job to inspire confidence, and he was doing the exact opposite of that. He was doing the exact opposite of that. Pretty embarrassing, but let's mm -hmm. see what, what's in store for us on the top five embarrassing political blunders. Number three. Read my lips. No new taxes. Mm-hmm. And the most prominent soundbite from his speech at the 1988 Republican National Convention, George H.W. Bush made a black and white promise not to raise taxes. Some of his advisors thought the language was too strong. Senior economic advisor Richard Darman crossed that line out in a draft, called it, quote, stupid and dangerous, and felt that it would handcuff the administration. But other advisors thought it was necessary in order to keep conservative support. In a campaign that was trying to portray Bush as a centrist, the line stayed in, and Bush said at the convention, I'm the one who will not raise taxes. My opponent now says he'll raise them as a last resort or a third resort. But when a politician talks like that, you know that's one resort he'll be checking into. My opponent won't rule out raising taxes, but I will. And the Congress will push me to raise taxes, and I'll say no. And they'll push, and I'll say no. And they'll push again, and I'll say to them, read my lips. No new taxes. Bush received a significant boost in poll numbers and favorability ratings after the convention. One pollster said he'd never seen anything like it. Yeah, it's a pretty it big deal. It was a big bounce. Bush won the election, but then by 1990, the nation was in a bit of a recession got slow economic growth it's resulting in an increased budget deficit and the law required harsh mandatory spending cuts if the deficit was not reduced and now bush is caught between a bit of a rock and a hard place yeah and he's in a, a bad situation here i don't think he realized how bad yeah well they were counting on you know the high growth of the reagan years it started to slow down a bit and they're getting crunched on the budget. Now Bush's advisors are feeling like they're going to have to compromise on taxes. Bush gave a little speech. He conceded that tax increases were on the table in budget negotiations. And the next day's New York Post headline was, Read My Lips, I Lied. Ouch. By the time Bush signed off on a budget that included multiple tax increases, his approval rating had already fallen 23 points. It's a big dip. Yep. In 1992, Bill Clinton's campaign ads hammered Bush over his broken promise, and Bush began apologizing for raising taxes, saying he regretted it and should have held out for a better deal. Not a good look. And somebody that's the chief executive of the nation. Mm -hmm. Well, that issue was considered a major factor in his failure to win re-election. 
One Republican strategist described it as, quote, probably the most serious violation of any political pledge anybody has ever made. And another called the pledge the six most destructive words in the history of presidential politics. Boom, boom, boom. And that leads us on to another string of words. Yep. That stand in the lexicon of American presidential history. Yep. As we proceed to the top five embarrassing political blunders. Number two. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. <laughs> in a deposition he gave in Paula Jones's sexual harassment case in December 1997, Bill Clinton testified under oath that he never had sexual relations with a White House intern named Monica Lewinsky. She had also submitted an affidavit denying any physical relationship. As our listeners know from Episode 2's Top 5 Presidential Adulterers, that wasn't true. A little bit of a fib. But when allegations of the Lewinsky affair became public in January 1998, Clinton continued to deny it. A week after the story first broke, he stood before the press and made a categorical denial. I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie. Not a single time. Never. These allegations are false. And I need to go back to work for the American people. What Clinton didn't know at the time was that Ken Starr's independent counsel investigation was already in possession of phone calls secretly recorded by Linda Tripp, in which Monica Lewinsky admitted to the affair and asked Tripp to lie about it in the Paula Jones case. In July, Lewinsky described the affair in grand jury testimony and turned over a now infamous blue dress stained with semen that proved out to be the president's. In August, Clinton was forced to admit the affair to a grand jury and, in a televised address to the American people, admitted that he had lied about it. Clinton was cited for civil contempt and fined $90,000 for his deposition testimony, and his law license suspended and was impeached for the perjury and obstruction of justice by the House of Representatives. The Senate acquitted him, but the damage to his reputation was done. The scandal became fodder for more late-night joke monologues than any other event in American history. A study showed Jay Leno told 4,600 jokes targeting Clinton, constituting more than 10% of all the jokes told during Leno's 20-year tenure hosting The Tonight Show. Wow. <laughs> Have you seen this? Have you heard about this? Everyone saw it and heard about it. Some analysts believe the scandal gave voters Clinton fatigue and led to Al Gore's narrow defeat in the 2000 election. It was a pretty close one. Yeah. You gotta think that had an effect. Indeed. 
And that's going to bring us down to the top five political blunder. Number one. Mission accomplished. Yep. The U.S. invasion of Iraq began on March 20th, 2003. By April 9th, Americans had occupied Baghdad. And on May 1st, President George W. Bush landed on the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln in a fighter jet, posed for photos wearing a full flight suit, and gave a speech announcing that major combat operations in Iraq have ended in the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. Now, Bush also said, We have difficult work to do in Iraq, and our mission continues. But yeah. behind him was a prominent banner that said, Mission accomplished. When the Iraq War soon degenerated into a protracted and bloody insurgency, that banner became the iconic symbol of Bush's folly. It was mocked across the world, including on Saturday Night Live, The Simpsons, Arrested Development, Scrubs, and The Daily Show. Everyone's taken a bite out of him. You see, only 104 Americans had died in Iraq at the time of the Mission Accomplished speech, but more than 4,000 would die after it. In October 2003, the cover of Time magazine said, Mission Not Accomplished. He could have come up with a better title. Mm. They should have uh, put, like, bullet holes and stuff in the sign behind him and make it say mm. misled. Yep. Well, I the, bet somebody did that, actually. Probably. The Bush administration later... That sounds too good for me to have just come up with. Yeah. Sorry. The Bush administration later claimed that it had nothing to do with the banner, that it was the Navy's idea... And that it didn't refer to the war generally, but only to the mission of that particular aircraft. Oh, well, they were just having a personal party, that's yeah. all. The press secretary, Dana Perino, said President Bush is well aware that the banner should have been much more specific and said, mission accomplished for these sailors who are on this ship on their mission. But they would have had to pay for each letter. Yeah. She said, we, and we have certainly paid a price for not being more specific on that banner. Should have paid for each letter. Mm -hmm. The defense secretary, Donald Rumsfeld, had, he had revised a draft of Bush's speech to remove the phrase, mission accomplished. And he later said, they fixed the speech, but not the sign. On his way out of the White House in January 2009, Bush admitted, quote, clearly putting mission accomplished on an aircraft carrier was a mistake. Clearly. And it's rare that a president will outright admit to a mistake. Yeah, that's true. This one was pretty obvious. Now, Jim, uh, we lived through three of these. Mm -hmm. So we could actually remember and comment exactly what was going on in mm -hmm. the news at the time and how it was being handled on tv and mm -hmm. all this and that yeah i think this um, top five is you know tilted towards more modern given the more yeah. modern media and it, you know how much the president is out there yeah um you may be wondering uh now where's our 45th president on this list well but, you yeah. know as of the time of this recording, we're only, you know, we're less than six months out from him leaving office. And, you know, from a historical perspective, maybe too early to determine uh, 
whether he ever made any blunders <laughs> or uh, just to choose between them. Right. You may consider his entire presidency an honorable mention. Just, but as, in a, terms, just as a blunder. In terms all. of, uh, you know. An embarrassment. Em embarrassment. I think he's kind of constitutionally incapable of feeling shame or embarrassment. A but, special new term. You know, whether you love him or hate him, there were certainly many uh, occasions on which he wasn't doing himself any favors. Yeah. Constitutionally so. incapable of feeling shame. Yeah. That's fun. But I mean, I don't know. In thinking about these things as we live through them, Clinton, uh, we've talked about before we were younger mm -hmm. when that was going on. So it was like, what? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that was pretty salacious. Yeah. And we were in high school with W. Yeah. I remember for Obama, I had a stand-up bit where I was talking about conspiracy theories like like the moon landing in 9-11 truth conspiracy. And I was like, do you honestly believe that, uh, you know, the same people who can't run a website <laughs> can, like pull off the fake moon landing or pull off 9-11 mm -hmm. and keep it a secret. So. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I was always into the presidents and stuff. I don't, I don't recall any president ever getting so harshly lambasted as George W. Bush, whether or not it was right, just from an objective standpoint, there was a lot of anti-Bush. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was pretty I, harsh. for one, like to keep things smooth. Mm -hmm. So you could call me an anti-Bush man. But then, uh, yeah, Bush and got... The, the healthcare thing didn't... Mm, it, it did actually financially affect me a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, it, I mean, it's just a terrible look when your kind of party is like, hey, you know, the government can take care of things. The government should have more control over the healthcare industry. And then look, look how it, it happens. Yeah. They didn't look very uh, in charge there. Mm -mm. Not a good look. Almost as bad a look as any podcast that commits the most embarrassing podcasting blunder of trying to compete with the Dead Presidents podcast. That's right. Until next time.